Okay, so I've got that up there. All right, so tonight we are continuing our study on the subject of the suffering and the uh, crucifixion and the death of Messiah. And I'm going to back up just a little bit and cover some notes that we covered last week just to kind of give us a little bit of a flow. So I will back up. I think we're on page three or four in the study notes, uh, but it starts with the section, The Cross of Christ Became the Central Message uh, of the Gospel. So let me go ahead and cover that. I'll tell you what, let me just back up to the previous paragraph, and I'll just read through that. Um, So just prior to crucifixion, a person was scourged with a whip, Uh, which had thongs that were braided with sharp sharp objects, such as nails. Uh, As an act of public humiliation, criminals carried their own cross to the place of execution, and once there, were stripped naked before being fastened to the cross, either with rope or nails. Now, we know that Christ was crucified with nails. Uh, The the two thieves uh, that were on either side of him, I don't know that we have any definitive information to say whether they were tied or, or nailed. Uh, it's, it's hard to be dogmatic. Uh, being tied to a cross with ropes was less painful in the beginning, but would leave the victim to hang for a longer period of time, even days, which would make the experience more painful in the end. And some who were tied to the cross are recorded to have lasted for nine days. Nailing a person to a cross was more painful from the beginning and would have led to a quicker death. The body would hang between three to four feet from the ground. And sometimes a soporific was given to the victim to help numb the senses. Remember the word soporific is a compound word, and it means to make sleepy. And what it was, was it was an anesthetic. It was was an act of mercy that was given to numb the senses to help alleviate some of the pain. Uh, In Jesus' case, we know that it was wine mixed with myrrh which we know that the Lord rejected because it would have clouded his thinking. Now, in some situations, the Romans would break the victim's legs, which would hasten death. Uh, By the way, I didn't mention it last week, but there's a a phrase for that. It derives from the Latin, and it's the word crurifragium. Crurifragium, and it's a word that means breaking bones, and it refers to the practice of the Romans using either a large club or maybe a mallet of some sort. It was some sort of blunt instrument that they would use to break the legs below the knees. And remember that when the body was suspended, uh, let's say, you know, Christ being crucified, that, that his arms were outstretched and his feet placed one on top of the other with the nail going through, that when the body is in that position, it, push, it puts pressure on the rib cage making it difficult to breathe. So you would have to pull and push yourself up uh, from the cross in order to take a deep enough breath to be able to uh, speak. And, uh, you know, obviously if the, if the Romans were to break the legs, then you can't push yourself up. You could pull, but that uh, is designed to expedite death. Not only that, but the Romans could be quite cruel in the sense that they would build a fire at the base of the cross, and this would cause smoke to come up, um, which would cause the victim to choke and you know, try to get them to pull themselves up more to get a breath. And again, the Romans could be very, very cruel at this. But that whole breaking of the, of the legs was a common practice. Again, that's called crurifragium, and you can, you can look that up if you want to. Uh, So again, in some situations, the Romans would break the victim's legs, which would hasten death. But according to Scripture, we know that Jesus was already dead by the time the soldiers considered doing this. 
Merrill F. Unger states, and here I'm citing from his uh, Bible dictionary, he says, in most cases, the body was allowed to rot on the cross by the action of the sun and rain or to be devoured by birds and beasts, end quote. We know biblically that Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple of Jesus, came to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body that he might bury it, and Pilate granted his request. And then that uh, last note that I make there, that it's likely that Jesus was crucified in April of A.D. 33. Now, the cross of Christ became central, remember, to the message of the gospel. The Apostle Paul was sent by the Lord Jesus, according to 1 Corinthians 1.17, to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. But the gospel, the cross itself, became very much central to the gospel message, and there's intentionality here. So uh, he said that he was sent to preach the gospel. Now, Paul was not concerned with human sophistry, winning arguments, or impressing his audience uh, by means of rhetorical prowess, but merely by presenting the simple message of the cross of Christ, which brings eternal salvation to those who trust in Jesus as their Savior. Now listen, Paul is an extremely bright man. And you read his writings, and you read, for example, the book of Romans, and you think, man, this guy's genius. And he was uh, uh, multilinguistic. He spoke several languages. Uh, He was educated by some of the best teachers of the day. And he was not without skill uh, to be able to communicate verbally. And yet, he brings the message down to uh, a very simple message, an offensive message really, to a lot of people, and it's the cross of Christ. And so Paul continued in Romans chapter 1. He said, and here I'm citing from 1 Corinthians 1.18 and then, then verses 23 and 24. He said, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then he says in verses 23 and 24, he says, We preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ uh, is what he preaches, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul then summarized his gospel message in 1 Corinthians 2.2 when he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, again, you have to put yourself back in the context, uh, the historical context of the time when Paul made this statement, because people would have seen crucifixion firsthand. Remember that the Romans practiced it uh, quite a bit. And sometimes if you were approaching a city or leaving a major city on a, on a thoroughfare, uh, you would sometimes see dozens of bodies hanging on, on crosses crucified as you came in the city or left the city. And so Uh, it was very common. And so for him to say, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, they would have had a very strong image of exactly what a crucified Messiah looks like. And they would have understood it in a much, much deeper way uh, than we understand it today. Now, The image of a crucified Savior seems entirely foolish to a world that creates its saviors out of strong heroes. 
And one can go back and read, for example, the old Greek uh, playwrights or the, uh, or, the, or the Greek writers or even the Roman writers, uh, and you read their pantheon of gods. And really today, if you, if you, if you ever study ancient Greek or Roman history and you, and you look at their pantheon of deities, uh, you can very easily compare them today to Marvel superheroes. Uh, because that's what they were. They were, in effect, amplified humanity. And really, amplified humanity at its worst, not at its best, because the gods often fought with each other. They lied to each other. They deceived one another. They were, they were basically just amplified humanity. And again, amplified humanity at its worst. But they were these strong hero types. And, uh, and you see that in their mindset. And we have that today in our culture, because that's sort of baked into the uh, human DNA or the experience of humanity or the pride of men, that we want, we want these strong, you know, human-like heroes and so this, this idea of a crucified Savior, again, it just, it just seems very counterintuitive, you know, somewhat even antithetical to what we think of when we think of a Savior. So the image of a crucified Savior, again, seems entirely foolish to a world that creates its Savior out of strong heroes, but strong in the human sense of one who can save himself and others. Now, Jesus is certainly strong, again, after all, He's God. <laughs> we talked about this a little bit last week. And you think of passages like in John chapter 1 or Colossians, which makes it very clear that all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing has come into being that has come into being. And so when you understand that Jesus is the God of Genesis 1-1, that when it reads, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that's, that's Christ. That is portrayed very clearly as Jesus, the second member of the Trinity in John chapter 1. And, in, and then in Colossians. And, you know, it's very, very straightforward. So again, Jesus is certainly strong. After all, he's God. And the truth of Scripture is that he does save forever those who come to him in faith. However, the humility of the cross, with all its offense and shame, really leaves no place for human wisdom or pride. Uh, for one must admit that it was his sin that placed Messiah on the cross to be judged and die that it was his sin that placed Messiah on the cross to be judged and to die. And, and I think that way because when I think of the death of Christ upon the cross, I realize that he died for me, that he bore my sin. Uh, there's this famous painting by Rembrandt uh, called The Raising of the Cross. And if you get a chance to Google it, I, I recommend that you do check it out. But it's a, it's a, it's a, a painting by Rembrandt called The Raising of the Cross. And it's a picture of Jesus being raised up on a cross. And he's not quite in a full vertical position. He's in the process of being raised. What's interesting is that Rembrandt, the painter, puts himself in the painting. And he is among those who are raising Christ up on the cross. And he's standing there with his painter's clothes and he has his painter's hat on. And it's very clear that it's Rembrandt. There's no mistaking who that is. And what he's doing in that painting is he is communicating to all the world that he helped raise Christ upon the cross, that it was his sin that put Jesus upon the cross, and that he personally recognizes that aspect of the death of Christ and that he was bearing the sins of Rembrandt himself. Now, I wrote a poem in my final year at seminary, and I titled it Christ to the Cross, and I've actually listed the poem in tonight's notes. I don't know that we'll get to it or not. Um, but I tried to capture in words what Rembrandt captured in his painting. 
And that is the understanding that it was my sins that placed Christ upon the cross, that he died for me. And so in one sense, we understand that. So again, the humility of the cross with all its offense and shame leaves no place for human wisdom or pride. For one must admit that it was his sin that placed Messiah on the cross to be judged and die. To come to Jesus as a crucified Messiah requires humility. For one must honestly honestly look at oneself from the divine perspective and admit that he is a lost sinner in need of a Savior, a Savior who was willing to lay down his life and bear the punishment of the guilty. This requires truth, really God's truth, the truth from the Word of God, because the Word of God provides us the standard by which we are able to determine uh, what is reality. It literally gives us the definition of, of, of reality as far as what it reveals. But when the Bible portrays mankind, it portrays mankind not in a glorified state. Now, it is true that we are made in the image of God, and even though uh, we are fallen, we still retain the image. And, and we might say that the image is effaced but not erased, uh, but it's still there. But nonetheless, mankind is fallen, and the estimation of mankind is that there's nothing good in man. We are totally depraved. That is, sin permeates every aspect of our being and renders us helpless utterly helpless to be able to save ourselves before a righteous and holy God. And that's why the cross was necessary. It was absolutely necessary because we cannot save ourselves. So again, this requires truth to see oneself from the divine perspective as utterly sinful and lost. And it requires humility to admit that one is powerless and cannot save himself from a damnable future to which he is certainly headed. And all humanity is headed there because we are all born in Adam. We are all born in sin. We are all born in Satan's slave market of sin. Now, it, it is the work of Messiah that saves. Nothing more is required. Jesus paid it all. And that's one of the things that I've driven at in the last few months that we've been studying soteriology is that uh, man needs only Christ to be saved. Nothing more. Nothing more. Now, here I have a quote by W.E. Vine, and this is taken from Vine's topical commentary. He says, quote, the cross, of Christ, uh, the cross of Christ does far more than express the fact of the infinite love of God to man in the death of his son. It exposes the enmity of the human heart against God, reveals the true nature of sin as in the sight of God, and makes known the impossibility of bridging by any human effort the chasm that separates unregenerate man from God, end quote. And so it communicates this idea that if we could save ourselves, then the death of Christ would not have been necessary. But he did die. And he died because... There's no other way for us to be saved. There's no other way for God's righteousness to be satisfied. And this is one of the things I talked about before, but we'll circle back to it again. Uh, And that is that when we think about the cross, we should think, uh, though God has many attributes, remember he's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, righteousness, justice, sovereignty, love, immutability, veracity, eternal life. He's grace and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and merciful. And he has these wonderful attributes that are part of the essential nature of who, who God is. Um, but when we think about the cross, though multiple attributes come into play, uh, there are two primary ones that come into play, and that is righteousness and love. Because at the cross, God's righteousness was satisfied in that he poured out his wrath and judged 
Christ in our place. Sin must be dealt with. God cannot simply dismiss it. He cannot simply look away. He can't sweep it under the rug. Sin must be judged. And it's either going to be judged in the offender or it's going to be judged in a substitute. And that was what the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament communicated, was that when you brought the lamb to the altar to be sacrificed, it was, its, its life was being uh, uh, taken from it. Its blood was being shed for you because you're the offender. The lamb is the innocent uh, uh, animal that bears the punishment uh, for your sin before a righteous and holy God. And so, you know, this is what was communicated in, in symbolic form through the sacrifice of these lambs. And when Jesus shows up, of course, John the Baptist in John 1.29 says, Behold the Lamb of God. Who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world. So we see Jesus being the reality behind the symbol. He's the, 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 the animal was the type. Christ is the anti-type. He's the reality. And so he is the Lamb of God. He's God's Lamb. He's the one that God is going to send. And we, of course, we know that Christ willingly went to the cross. He said, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down. And he did. He went to the cross and he died. But we see righteousness at the cross and we see judgment and we see wrath and we see the sky growing dark and the Father pouring out his wrath upon the Son and Christ crying out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we don't just see righteousness at the cross. We also see love. Because Romans 5.8 says, For God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So we see those two attributes coming together at the cross. Uh, righteousness to judge our sin as his righteousness requires and love to save the sinner uh, as his love desires because he wants to save us. And the cross becomes the solution both to the righteousness of God and the display of his love as well. But because of that, we must realize our utter helplessness to save ourselves. Wendell Johnson adds, and here I'm citing, this is a lengthy quote, but that's all right, and this is taken from the Theological Word book, um, edited by Charles Swindoll and Roy B. Zuck. It's a good book. It's a single volume. If you can get it, I do recommend it for your library. But Johnston states, quote, The cross stands at the center of Paul's theology. He saw this humiliating and cruel instrument in a new light as the extraordinary opportunity to boast in his Savior. He says the shameful... He says the shameful cross stood for everything the world despised, and thus his allegiance to Christ separated him from the world. Jesus' death was like a magnet drawing the outcasts of the world to Christ. It makes human wisdom foolish and weak people strong, and it breaks the spirit of the proud and lifts up the meek and humble. Because of his death, Jesus breaks the shackles of those in bondage who believe in him. The cross brings peace to those in fear, and it unites Jews and Gentiles into one body. He goes on, he says, The cross brought complete fulfillment to the system of the Mosaic Law and did away with all the regulations standing against humanity. Because of the cross, God gives eternal life to those who believe. The cross, which to the world seemed proof of defeat, became the means of triumph, end quote. And I opened up Galatians 6.14 where Paul says, But may it never be that I would boast, 
except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are people who boast in themselves, boast in their abilities, boast in their accomplishments. But for Paul, it was, it was not about self, it was about Christ and boasting of what, who, who he is and what he's done. So the cross represents the love of God. Remember Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And remember, we talked about the Greek preposition huper, uh, the word translated for there. And the preposition huper is one of two main prepositions, the other one being anti, uh, the stronger of the two, but they both communicate the idea of substitution, that Christ died as a substitute for us. Uh, So again, the cross represents the love of the Father, but it represents the love of Jesus as well. As Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20, he wrote of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So we see the love of the Father at the cross. Now we see the love of the Spirit also in that he sustained the humanity of Christ. We talked about that as well. But it represents the love of Jesus, as Paul wrote, of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Because remember, Jesus gave up, he, he, he allowed himself to go to the cross. And he could have stopped it anywhere along the way, but he didn't. Furthermore, what's interesting is Paul saw himself as crucified with Jesus. He says in Galatians 2.20, in the first part, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. Now, this is what is called an identification truth because we are said to be identified with Christ, not only in his death, but in his burial and in his resurrection and even his ascension, believe it or not, that we are so uh, connected with Christ. And Paul uses the prepositional phrase in Christo, in Christ. He uses it multiple times throughout his writings and it communicates this idea of what, again, is called an identification truth, that we are identified with Christ. Now, prior to our salvation, we were said to be in Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. And we know that by one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so all sinned in Adam. Uh, But at the moment of faith in Christ, we are transferred from being in Adam to being placed in Christ. And that becomes an identification. It becomes who we are, our new identity, as it were. And so Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, the word crucified with translates the Greek verb sustaurao, sustaurao. Now, you can see staurao there, the word for, for cross, but you have that uh, preposition that's added on there, that su, which means with. And so it means that one is crucified with another. Now, what's interesting is that when you chase down this word, when you chase down this word, sustarao, it is used in a literal sense of persons crucified in physical proximity to each other. Uh, For example, the word is used of the robbers who had been crucified with him, that is Jesus. And it's the exact same Greek word. When it says that they were crucified with him, it's sustaurao. It's the exact same Greek word. So it's used of those who, are, who die literally in physical proximity. But Paul wasn't on the cross with Christ. He wasn't hanging next to him like one of the robbers. So what does Paul mean when he says that he was crucified with Christ? Well, Paul used the word in Galatians in a spiritual sense, in which 
Paul, that is, he, Paul, is identified with Christ on the cross. That at the moment of faith in Christ, we are said to have died with him. And even when you think of baptism, what is baptism? Baptism is a picture of what? Of us going down with Christ in death and burial and then coming up in this newness of life. It's a, it's a picture And it's intended to communicate this spiritual reality because as God sees it, you were there on the cross with Christ. Now Christ bore the sin, but you died with him. So the same spiritual identification truth is for all who have trusted in Christ as our Savior. For to be crucified with Christ means that we are identified with our Lord in his death, burial, and resurrection. God sees us there at the cross with Christ dying with him. In fact, in Romans 6, 6, Paul states that our old self, notice he's speaking plural there, our old self was what? Was crucified with him. And in Romans 6, 8, he says that we have died with Christ. So when we study the subject of the crucifixion, when we study the subject of the cross, we see it in one sense in a physical sense, and I've tried to cover the material that explains that. But Paul helps us to understand it, the spiritual significance of the cross and what's going on there. And so he says that we have died with Christ. And of course, furthermore, as I already mentioned, we partook of his burial, resurrection, and ascension. Uh, Paul says in Romans 6, 4, that we have been buried with him. That is, we went into the grave with Christ and we were raised up with Christ, according to Colossians 3.1. And even now, we are said to be seated with him. We are said to be seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we are said to be recognized with Christ even in his ascension, that we are seated with him in the heavenly places. Again, this is an identification truth. And as I mentioned before, God's word literally defines reality. And the thing for us as believers is to recognize our identification in Christ and to realize that that we are said to be in him, in Christo, in Christ. And so it becomes part of our new identity as to how we see ourselves. Now concerning Galatians 2.20, William MacDonald, and this is taken from his commentary, the Believer's Bible Commentary. It's a single volume, but I like MacDonald. He's a, he's a good teacher. He says, quote, the believer is identified with Christ in his death. Not only was he crucified on, on Calvary, I was crucified there as well, in him. This means the end of me as a sinner in God's sight. It means the end of me as a person seeking to merit or earn salvation by my own efforts. It means the end of me as a child of Adam, as a man under the condemnation of the law, as my old unregenerate self. The old evil eye has been crucified. It has no more claims on my daily life, end quote. And he's right. He's talking about one of those identification truths. Paul really kind of gets to the heart of this when he gets down into um, Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Because prior to that, he's been talking about our being identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And in verse 11, he says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see, being dead to sin is not what we can be, it's what we are. 
And it's one of those things that becomes actualized at the moment that we begin to appropriate this truth by faith. Because it's only when we understand our identification in Christ and we begin to appropriate that by faith that we can then do what Paul is here telling us to do. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. Where? In Christ Jesus. In Christo Jesus. Again, it's that identification. And that becomes the foundation for this reality for even our Christian experience. So that covers the section on the cross and the crucifixion. Now let's jump into the notes here and let's talk about who crucified Jesus. Who crucified Jesus? Because that's a hot debate. It's a, it's a hot issue in some circles. Uh, well, let's, let's talk about it because the scripture is clear on this. Now the question is sometimes raised as to who crucified Jesus. Now according to Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer, and this is from his Systematic Theology, Volume 3, page 49, he says, quote, closely related to the contrast between the divine and human sides of Christ's death is the question, who put Christ to death? As already indicated, the scriptures assign both a human and a divine responsibility for Christ's death, end quote. Now, according to the testimony of scripture, Jesus' death on the cross, there are at least five, and, and perhaps even a six, but there are at least five. Uh, who we might say placed Jesus upon the cross. First is God the Father who sent him. Second is Jesus who willingly went to the cross. Third is Satan who worked through others to help crucify him. Fourth is unbelieving Jews. And five is unbelieving Gentiles. Now the Bible verses that address the various persons involved in the crucifixion of Jesus are intermixed. That is, a passage might address God the Father and Jesus or Jews and Gentiles or Satan and Jews, etc. And it is from these scripture passages that the following categories are recognized. And it's interesting because I think my brain tends to think in terms of systematic theology. A systematic theology is an attempt to, well, systematize doctrines that are born out of the scriptures. So what happens is if you're going to study a doctrine, let's say you're going to study angels, where you're going to go through all the Bible and you're going to look at roughly 275 occurrences where the word uh, malach, uh, Hebrew for angel, or Greek word angelos, the Greek word occurs, and you're going to look at all those instances. Uh, and you're going to take all those verses, and as you begin to read through them, you're going to see categories. You're going to see categories of some angels who have six wings. Uh, seraphim, you're going to see categories of angels that have four wings, cherubim, all the rest of the angels look like people, so they have no wings. Uh, but then you're going to separate the, the angels into two categories. You're going to say, well, there's holy angels, and then there's fallen or, or evil, wicked angels. And so your brain, as you begin to work through this, you're going to begin to systematize this, and you're going to have classifications, uh, and you're going to get down into, into the details of it. And this is what a systematic theologian does. Well, this is no different than what I'm doing here. I just simply went through and I looked at these various passages, and even though you find comments intermingled, what I've done is I've looked at them and extracted, well, this verse says this person, this verse says this person, this verse says this person. And all I did was systematize these, um, uh, these verses. So let's first look at God the Father who sent Christ to die. So who crucified Jesus? Well, the ultimate answer is God the Father. The Father was motivated by his love for us to save us. Therefore, his plan of salvation involved sending his Son into the world to die in our place. The record of Scripture, according to Isaiah 53.10, it says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, 
putting him to grief. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave what? His only begotten son. Acts 2.23 is one of those verses where you see two, two brought together. In the first part of Acts 2.23, it says that this man, Jesus, was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, that's the first half of the verse. Now, the second half of the verse, Jesus is talking to, to Jewish unbelievers, and he says, you nailed to the cross, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So here you see the coalescence of divine and human will brought together. Uh, but again, according to Acts 2.23, it's stated quite plainly that this man, talking about Jesus, was, del was delivered over, that is to be crucified, by the predetermined plan of foreknowledge of God. And Peter, praying to the Father in Acts 4.27 and 28, said, For truly in this city uh, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Well, gathered against Jesus was both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, notice, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And Romans 8.32, it says, And he did not spare his own son, talking about God the Father, but delivered him over for us all. So we see from these passages here, and you can look at others. You could look at uh, uh, Jesus where, you know, he said, you know, Father, shall I say, save me from this hour in John 12. He says, but for this purpose I came to this hour. And even when he was in the garden, he said, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but thy will be done. And clearly looking at the cross as something that was of divine necessity. We already hit that in last week's lesson. But you could see how other verses could very easily be brought into this. I just cherry-picked those ones that very clearly state the matter. And so we see God the Father uh, as being uh, the primary agent who was directing Christ to go to the cross, to die, that he might die as a substitute and bear our sin upon the cross. Lewis Berry Chafer states, and here I'm quoting from his systematic theology again, he says, quote, Human hands might inflict physical suffering and death as any victim would die, but only the hand of God could make Christ a sin offering or could lay on him the iniquity of, us other, of others, end quote. And he's right. Notice 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, He, that's God the Father, made him, that's Jesus, made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. In other words, Christ's crucifixion from the human perspective, from the Roman perspective, really wasn't any different than any other crucifixion, except that he was the most innocent person in the history of the human race, and it was the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of the human race. But as far as the crucifixion itself, it was just an everyday common crucifixion that one would have seen quite commonly in the Roman world. But again, his point is that human hands might inflict physical suffering and death as any victim would die, but only the hand of God could make Christ a sin offering and could lay on him the iniquity of, us, of others. Notice Isaiah 53, 6, All of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. When did that occur? When Christ was upon the cross. It was there that he bore our sins, as 1 Peter 3.18 tells us, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. So we see the role of God the Father here. 
We also see Jesus willingly going to the cross. Jesus willingly went to the cross. So though the Father sent Jesus into the world to be an atoning sacrifice for sin, the Father did not force him onto the cross. Remember, Jesus was not forced to go there. Uh, He was directed by the Father. The Father determined our salvation. He planned it from eternity past. He commissioned the Son to go. And the Son came. The Son obeyed, and He came into time and space. Remember, nearly 2,000 years ago, God the Son added humanity to Himself. This is called the doctrine of the hypostatic union. He took upon Himself humanity. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we see Christ in human form, in, in perfect humanity, and that, that coming together of divine and human natures into the one God-man, to the theanthropic person. So he willingly came into the world, but Jesus said, for this purpose came I into the world. For what purpose? To die. That was the final point of his life. He knew Even before he went to the cross, he knew that the cross was coming. He even prophesied and told the disciples about it on three occasions. Matthew 16, Matthew 17, Matthew 20. And of course, they didn't like what they heard, but, you know, he still communicated it right up to the end. So again, though the Father sent Jesus into the world to be an atoning sacrifice for sin, he did not force him onto the cross. Jesus consented to come into the world and go to the cross and die for us. He voluntarily laid down his life. The writer of Hebrews states, therefore, when he comes into the world, when he comes into the world, what's he talking about? He's talking about God the Son in hypostatic union. When he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but notice a body you have prepared for me. Now, Peter tells us that in his own body, he bore our sins. And that's in his humanity, because remember that sin cannot be imputed to deity. Uh, But he says that in his own body he bore our sins. Now Jesus, in hypostatic union, speaking from his humanity, in Hebrews 10, 7, said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. To do your will, O God. Thomas Constable notes, quote, Jesus was not some dumb animal that offered its life without knowing what it was doing. He consciously, voluntarily, and deliberately offered his life in obedience to God's will, end quote. And Jesus' voluntary death on the cross is found in several passages. Remember in John 10, 15, Jesus said, I lay down my life for the sheep. John 10, 18, he says, No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. Again, he willingly laid down his life. He allowed it to happen. Let's put it that way. And notice Ephesians 5, 2, where Paul wrote, Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. Gave himself up for us. What's he talking about? Notice what he says next. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. An offering and a sacrifice. He's talking about the cross. Ephesians 5.25, Paul said, Christ also loved the church, notice, and gave himself up for her. That is, uh, he took the blow. 
Galatians 2.20 says, The Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Again, Paul makes this very personal, doesn't he? And gave himself up for me. And Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. And the writer to the Hebrews tells us that Christ offered up himself. So this is something that, again, we have to keep these things in mind. And what does the scripture say on this? Well, interestingly enough, Satan also was instrumental in Jesus' crucifixion. The very first prophecy related to the cross is found in Genesis where God told Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and your and, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now in the, now in in uh, in theological circles that's called the Proto-Evangelion, uh, the first gospel where after sin had entered into the world, um, here was a hope that a descendant, a seed, would come from the line of the woman, and from that line would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. Now, concerning Genesis uh, 3.15, Lewis Berry Chafer states, and here I'm quoting again from his Systematic Theology, Volume 3, page 49, he says, quote, It is implied that Satan did what he could in the exercise of his power, directly or indirectly through human agents, against the Savior, end quote. And Satan's seed refers to all those who reject God and Christ and are part of, it, and are part of Satan's kingdom of darkness. Jesus said to unbelieving Jews, he said, You are of your father, the devil. And all unbelievers, according to Matthew 13, 38, are said to be sons of the evil one. I wrote a whole book called Tares Among the Wheat, <laughs> and it talks about that split, that bifurcation that we see in the world where everybody fits into one of two camps. Either you're a child of God or you're a child of Satan. It's one or the other. Um, but he recognizes and calls them sons of the evil one. Now these unbelievers, these who were part of Satan's kingdom were used by Satan to help in the crucifixion of Christ. And of course, we know on the night before Jesus' crucifixion, John in John 13, 2, we're told that during supper, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas, the son of Simon, to betray him. Ah, see, now the devil's at work here. The devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, to betray him over to be crucified. <clears throat> And during the meal, Jesus told his disciples, he said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And then in John 12, uh, 13, 27, it says, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. This is the only account I can think of in scripture. And of course, somebody will find one as soon as I say this. But this is the only account of scripture where somebody was actually possessed by Satan. But it says, then Satan then entered into him. And therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, who's he talking to? Is he talking to Judas? Or is he talking to Satan? Is he talking to both? So here we observe a coalescence of satanic and human activity to betray Jesus to those who would crucify him. In this regard, Satan was the motivating force behind Judas, his willing instrument to bring about the death of Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the chief priests, officers of the temple, and Jewish elders came to arrest Jesus. And he said to them, While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. This hour 
and the power of darkness. The power of darkness, what's he talking about? I think he's talking about the satanic forces. This hour and the power of darkness are yours. Those who came physically to lay hands on Jesus were Jewish authorities who conspired to kill him. God in his sovereignty permitted this to happen because it served his greater purposes to bring about salvation through the cross. But even though it was their hour to act, these men were not acting alone. As Luke's reference to the power of darkness demonstrates that Satan was behind them, driving them on as his agents of lies and destruction. Later, Luke would use the term darkness as a symbol of the sphere of Satan's authority, as Paul would as well. So we see here where Satan had some involvement as well. Now, unbelieving Jews also are said to be responsible. Though it was the Romans who actually placed Jesus on the cross and drove the nails, it was, according to Scripture, unbelieving Jews who conspired and lied about Jesus to have him crucified. Now, we're going to spend some time actually working through the trial. I'm going to, I'm going to work through it. I'm going to talk about the six illegal trials that went on during the night. We're going to talk about that uh, here in the very near future. In fact, it could be our, our next lesson. So at the time of Jesus' trial before Pilate, the Jews who were, all, who were present <clears throat> all shouted, Crucify him. Crucify him. So they're the ones that are pushing Pilate to crucify him. And God permitted Jesus' crucifixion both by the Jews and Romans, again because it served his greater purpose. Luke recorded Peter who said, Men of Israel, notice here Acts 2, 22 and 23, he says, Men of Israel, so who's he talking to? He's talking to Israelites, unbelieving Israelites at this time, men who were there, maybe among the crowd shouting, crucify him. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Notice, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So here, those uh, Jews, those unbelieving Jews at this time, also are made to bear some of the blame. Now clearly this address was to the men of Israel who rejected Jesus and nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. In Acts 4.27, Luke recorded, he says that there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus in the latter part of this, he says, the peoples of Israel. And not everybody, because obviously you had those who were the disciples, Jesus himself being a Jew, and you have the disciples uh, who were Jewish and were very much on his side. But here you had the majority. You had the leadership and the people. So he says, gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, the peoples of Israel, and this in order to crucify him. And then in 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 and 15, Paul wrote about the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. So there's some responsibility there as well. In the end, it was unbelieving Gentiles who crucified him. Though many unbelieving Jews were directly responsible for collaborating in the crucifixion of Jesus, it was Gentiles who actually did the work of placing him on the cross. And that's what Jesus foretold his disciples. Remember in Matthew chapter 20, verse 18 and 19, Jesus said, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And will hand him over to who? And will hand him over to the Gentiles. 
to do what? Well, hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. And it was said in Matthew 27, 31, it was said of the Roman soldiers that after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put on his own garments and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him and led him away to crucify him. So this was said of the Roman soldiers. And then in Acts 4.27, Luke records, uh, again, truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Notice both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with who? The Gentiles and the people of Israel. So as Christians... And this is where we might add a, a, a this is where we might add a sixth area here. As Christians, we must not see Christ dying at a distant time or place. We we really we really should as much as we possibly can study these things and really place ourselves there. Uh, so we must not see Christ dying at a distant time or place. We should see our own hands driving the nails that put him there, and then lifting the cross. And one must wonder, if I were there, would I have done any differently? If I were among the Romans, if I were among the Gentiles, if I had seen this, if I had, see, if I had not identified who Christ was, would I, have, would I have been among those who would have committed such an atrocity? And I could see that. If we're honest with ourselves, I think any of us could see that. So we should see our, our own hands driving the nails and, that put him there and, li- and then lifting the cross. You see, the crucifixion was not only for us, but by us. You see, it was our sin that necessitated his death and judgment. And we must see Jesus bearing all our sin and paying the penalty of the Father's wrath that rightfully belongs to us. Now, in May of 2006, I was taking a course at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, where I finished my Master of Divinity degree. And the course was being taught by Dr. Paige Patterson, who was the president of the seminary at that time. And whatever you think about Dr. Patterson, and people love him, people hate him, I have no opinion, except that when I took this course with him, it was one of the best theology courses I've ever had in my life. And he blew it out of the water. I mean, he did such a phenomenal job on the subject of the atonement. And we worked from Genesis to Revelation. We, we worked through the Bible. And we looked at those passages. And we, we studied a lot of things related to the temple and the sacrificial system and the function of the priests and the animals. And even when you go into the temple, uh, there was the holy place. There was the, there was the first room that, that, that the priests would go into. And you had the menorah and you have the table of showbread, and then up towards the, uh, the curtain that separated the holy, place, uh, the holy place from the Holy of Holies, the Kodesh, from the Kodesh HaKodeshim, uh, you had this, this curtain. Well, just at the front of the curtain was an altar of incense. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come in and he would take, all, he would take ashes Uh, and coals from the altar where an animal had been sacrificed uh, out in the courtyard, and he would bring it in on the Day of Atonement on that one time a year, Yom Kippur. And he would bring it in, and he would place the the ashes and the coals on this altar that was right in front of the curtain. 
And it would create smoke. Smoke would come up from the incense off this altar. And it was thought that as the, as, as the high priest would, would, would open up the, the curtain, because behind that you had the two cherubim that were overarching the Ark of the Covenant, and the mercy seat was on top. And once a year, the priest would come in, the high priest would come in, and he would take some of the blood from the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, what was called the mercy seat. And as far as I know, that thing was never cleaned. <laughs> so for centuries, the blood just kept being sprinkled on it, and one can imagine what that must have looked like. But it was thought that, that when, when the smoke was coming up off the altar of incense, that it would provide a, a covering for him as he went in there, because it was, it was the Holy of Holies, that it would provide this covering for him as he went in there to then sprinkle the blood on top of the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat. And so all this imagery was, was brought in. And then, of course, you think about Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, and all of this language that we were studying. Well, at the end of the semester, uh, we were all asked to write a hymn. Well, I'm, I'm not a hymn writer. I'm not a poet. Uh, but I worked on this poem uh, really for the whole semester. And I was trying to capture the language of the Bible as I was coming through this. And I was really trying to make it very personal uh, to place myself there at the cross. And I titled the poem, Christ to the Cross. And in some ways, I was even inspired by the painting by, by Rembrandt, uh, The Raising of the Cross. And again, if you, if you look at that picture and you see what Rembrandt is communicating, that he was there in the center of the painting, wearing his painter's hat, with his hands lifting Christ. And he's telling all the world, I, I put Christ upon the cross. I raised him up to die for me. It's, it's a powerful image. And so here's this poem that I came up with, and again, I titled it Christ to the Cross. I and the Father led Christ to the cross. Together we placed him there. I pushed him forward, no care for the cost, his Father's wrath to bear. Christ in the middle, not wanting to die, knelt in the garden and prayed. Great tears of blood the Savior did cry, yet his father he humbly obeyed. So he carried his cross down a dusty trail. No words on his lips were found. No cry was uttered as I drove the nails. His arms to the cross were bound. I lifted my Savior with arms spread wide. He hung between heaven and earth. I raised my spear and pierced his side. What flowed was of infinite worth. Like a lamb to the altar, Christ did go, a sacrifice without blemish or spot. A knife was raised and life did flow. In a basin, the blood was caught. Past the incense table in the dark black veil to that holy of, of holy places. The blood of Christ was made to avail, and all my sins it erases. Now this lamb on a cross was a demonstration of the Father's love for me. For the Savior's death brought satisfaction, redeemed, and set me free. Now I come to the Savior by faith alone, not trusting in works at all. Jesus, my substitute for sin, did atone. Salvation in answer to his call. And I remember that there were times as I was putting this together, it was very hard for me not to be thinking about the imagery of the cross. And there were times where I would... I would cry <laughs> uh, as, I, as I thought about this because, again, I take it very personal that Christ died 
for me. And he died for you. <laughs> he died for the sins of all of humanity. But it's when we understand that in a very personal way, I think that it really impacts us the way that it should impact us. All right, so that is going to close out this lesson for tonight. And um, next week when we pick up, well, not next week. Actually, next week is Thanksgiving. So we'll, we'll not have Bible class next Saturday. We'll pick up uh, in uh, the weekend after the first uh, Saturday in December. And we will pick up and we will look at what Jesus suffered by men. And then we will also look at what he suffered by the Father. So that will be something that we will uh, unpack in the days ahead. I've been working on extra notes and uh, have currently finished my section on the doctrine of election. Uh, that'll be a few months out. Uh, and I handed Sherry, I think it was like 65 or 70 pages of notes the other day. She's still working through it. But that'll, that'll be our next section when we jump into, after we get through with this section on the suffering, crucifixion, and death of Messiah, uh, we'll begin to look at some very theologically rich words, and we will delve into that as we continue this study uh, on the subject of soteriology. All right, well, everybody, well, let's go ahead and wrap it up with a word of prayer, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that uh, we can have this time of fellowship together, that we can study your word, that we can take this time to consider the subject of the suffering, the crucifixion, and the death of Messiah. And uh, Father, we thank you that we can study your word and that we can extract these truths and that we can understand who the players are uh, concerning the death of Messiah and that we can also understand the significance of Father, we thank you for this uh, truth that has been revealed to us. We pray that you will illuminate our hearts and help us to understand it in a deeper and in a fuller way. We pray in the days ahead, Father, that we will be challenged by these things, that we might grow thereby. Father, we thank you. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.